0: So, let's generate her motivation. And especially in a a situation of teaching, what really um, brings everybody here together is sharing a common motivation. If we all came here with different motivations, different aims, different purposes, you you could feel that not everybody was in sync. But when we all come here with a Dharma motivation, one of compassion, one that seeks full awakening, then we're all really on the same page. And that uh, creates a special feeling among the students and also between the students and the teacher So take a moment and generate that bodhicitta and feel how you share it with everybody else here, uh, boosting everybody's bodhicitta by yours and everybody else's bodhicitta also boosting yours. So somewhere in this chapter that we're coming to, when I was reading it today, um, I think it was talking about collective karma. And I had made the comment in, in it that uh, it's so remarkable to be able to go to teachings with His Holiness where everybody is there for the same purpose. I mean, of course, you know not necessarily everybody has exactly the same purpose, but kind of going in the same direction, and then His Holiness leads us in a motivation. And so that, then we all create karma together, you know, um, quite virtuous karma by sharing that motivation. And so whenever I'm in big dharma groups like that, you know, I recall that feeling and uh, And then it also makes me think, my uh, freshman year in college, okay, um, I was dating one guy who liked football, and so uh, he invited me to the football games. So I know nothing about football. I think chasing balls is really stupid. But, um, you know, I wanted to date him. So I went. So I, I happened to be at USC, a student there at the same time as OJ was, and so OJ was the quarterback, um, you know, during that time. And of course, yes, he was. Oh, he was a running back. Oh, okay, okay. He he was back somewhere. He was kind of a back of I you don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so okay, so he was a running back. Where did he run back to? <laughs> oh, to the goal line, okay. So um yeah. So, <laughs> so um in fact my college yearbook, somebody sent them, my sister sent them up here. We tried to put them on Craigslist, nobody got them, but they're somewhere around the abbey and Oh really? Okay, because they had pi- they had pictures of OJ in them, so I'm sure they were worth a lot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, when you go to the football games, you know what we would shout everybody together. So this is the topic of collective karma. Okay. She so you know what the whole USC audience and people beyond screamed? Kill! Kill! That was, that was how you cheered OJ on. Everybody was screaming, kill! Kill! And it looked like it went to his head. When you think of what happened later on in his life. So it was interesting, you know, you're with um, people who have a certain energy and a certain goal and everybody's screaming, kill. And it was like, um, he was a nice guy, but I didn't want to go to football games with him anymore. (laughs) Yeah, it just wasn't my style. So, yeah, I always wonder what happened to him he was a pianist I wonder if he ever became famous
1: <laughs>
0: not, not that I would ever find out I have no clue <laughs> okay, yes and Larry was at USC at that time yes passing out anti-war literature. (laughs) Okay, so we're on chapter 12, The Workings of Karma. So this is another, you know, we've had several chapters here on karma. And uh, in ordering the topics of the book, yeah, we move karma up Usually, karma comes after refuge. You do uh, precious human life, death, lower realms, refuge, karma. Okay? Uh, but most people who didn't grow up Buddhist, refuge becomes a, a a much more difficult topic for them to really understand what it's about. And what are the qualities of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and so on. So I decided, you know, because, you know, you have death and, and then lower realms, most people by that time want to learn about karma, you know. And if there are different realms, then what makes you born in them? And then you talk about karma and And, you know, people get some idea of uh, cause and effect and how it works uh, in the ethical uh, dimension. And then after that, you know, um, actually we put in, in the series, we put, this is volume two, volume three, You know, it was all about samsara, nirvana, buddha nature. And then in volume four, we got to refuge. Okay, so really reordering it. But it seems to be a better fit that way. Yeah, because people who didn't grow up Buddhist are not so ready to, you know, they're not going to have instant faith. And so they want to learn the teachings and think about the teachings. And if the teachings make sense, and if when they practice the teachings, they help them, then they'll think about, you know, taking refuge. Okay? So that's why karma comes much earlier here. And unlike in the Lamrim, where the description of karma is, is quite basic, yeah. Uh, here, we tried to put in much more material. So there's a lot of material from the Abhidharma in here explaining how karma works. Yeah, so quite quite important topic, I think. Yeah, because when you think, um y- you know, when you talk about realizing emptiness, which comes much later on the path, and then how important it is when you realize emptiness to maintain a very good, uh, a robust understanding of cause and effect. That cause and effect is primarily karma. Yeah, it's all cause and effect. There's different kinds of cause, cause and effect systems. But especially, you know, having a robust understanding and belief and confidence in the functioning of karma, because otherwise people, meditate on emptiness, they negate too much. They fall to the extreme of nihilism. And, you know, in nihilism, then, you know, there's no cause and effect. And that's where you hear sometimes people saying, well, I'm a tantric practitioner, so there's no good. There's no bad. Yeah, you hear this a lot. And those people don't understand Tantra very well, because, uh, you know, to realize emptiness, whether in Sutra or Tantra, um, you have to have good understanding of karma. Yeah, Otherwise, you get in that thing, you know, there's no good, there's no bad, so you just have a good motivation and then you can do everything. But a good motivation is whatever I feel like doing. (laughs) You know, and then it becomes really poisonous for the people. Yeah, I mean, I've even heard that at Buddhist conferences, Western Buddhist conferences. People, uh, you know, kind of talking like that. Okay, so chapter 12, The Workings of Karma. Our actions can be classified in several different ways. Learning these enriches our understanding of karma and its effects, which in turn helps us to be more conscientious. I was reading it today and I thought, "Mm, I should have put conscientious rather than mindful there. Conscientious about thoughts, words, and deeds. Okay, and so the the first subheading here is projecting and completing karma. Sometimes um, people translate projecting karma as throwing karma, so just so you don't get uh, confused if, yeah, you heard another translation. The whole idea is that the actions throw you into another rebirth or project you into another rebirth that way. Okay, so projecting and completing karma are differentiated by the types of results they bring. Projecting karma ripens in rebirth in a samsaric realm with the five aggregates of a desire realm or form realm being of, or the four aggregates of a formless realm deva. Okay, so desire realm and form realm gods have five aggregates. Okay, what are the five aggregates? Form, feeling, feeling, discrimination, discrimination, miscellaneous factors, consciousness. 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 Which one do the formless realm gods not have? Form. okay. So in Tantra, they say they still have the extremely subtle wind, you know, but they don't have a, Uh, other kind of form. Okay. So um, projecting and complete, uh, completing, well, no, projecting karma is the second of the 12 links of dependent origination, okay, which is called formative actions because they form the next rebirth. Okay. So they're the second link, uh, completing karma determines the specific attributes or experiences in that life. The projecting karma of ethical conduct leads the mind to be born with human aggregates, for example, or those, uh, the aggregates of, of, um, well, basically human aggregates. It could be the form realm too, but there you need certain states of concentration. Uh, And the completing karma, um, wait a minute, yeah, of speaking kindly to others makes the body attractive. Okay, so the ethical conduct, that's the projecting karma for a good rebirth, particularly a human rebirth. And then completing karma gives all the other uh, attributes and things that are going on in that rebirth. So, for example, they say that if you practice patience, yeah, and you practice kindness, then you're born with an attractive body. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so that's a completing karma. Uh, It goes the reverse way, too. If you create a negative karma, then you wind up in the desire realm, but the three lower realms of the desire realm, the unfortunate realms. And uh, in addition, if you have uh, negative uh, completing karma, then, you know, the events that you experience in that life are are miserable. Okay. So all... but there, there there's... Um, there's four P between these, okay? So all four branches um, must be uh, uh, must be complete for an action to become a projecting karma. Okay, what are the four branches? The basis. The basis, meaning? The object or the person. The, uh, the object or person that you're acting upon. Yeah. The attitude, performing. yeah, performing the action, completion. completion. Okay, so you have to have all four of those complete for an action to become a projecting karma. So not all actions we do project a new rebirth. Okay, in births resulting from either virtuous or non-virtuous projecting karma we can experience the results of either virtuous or non-virtuous completing karma. Okay, here's where your 4P come in. Okay, so, uh, and the charts give some results. So without looking at the chart, okay, what is an example of somebody who has virtuous um, projecting karma and virtuous completing karma? Okay. (laughs) Uh, What's the example of someone whose rebirth was caused by virtuous projecting karma but non virtuous completing karma? Being born in Syria? Yeah. Maybe being uh, in Syria and having to become a refugee. Okay. Someone who has non-virtuous projecting karma, but virtuous completing karma. Karuna. <laughs> Karuna Pekka my, my, my tree. Okay. And someone who has uh, non-virtuous projecting karma and non-virtuous completing karma. The turkeys. Hmm? The turkeys. The turkeys. Mm-hmm. The tart, the turkeys here have it pretty good, don't you think? How
2: about the dogs in India?
0: The dogs in India, yes. Yeah, a chickens in a factory farm. You know, the dogs in India. Okay. So this is very helpful to know, because then when you go over around you look at different people's lives you can see this now of course during one lifespan the projecting karma is the same it's not going to change but the completing karma can change you know uh, somebody can uh, let's say be very comfortable early in life and then quite miserable later on or vice versa so while projecting karma determines the type of body we appropriate, human, animal, and so forth, completing karma affects such factors as the genetic predispositions of the body and whether those predispositions are activated. Okay, so that's going to be a, a completing karma, whether you have uh, genes that, you know, make you predisposed to certain illnesses or things like that. Okay? Um, It also, completing karma would, um, uh, you know, have to do with the the family that we're born into, whether it's a, you know, uh, a wealthy, comfortable family, whether it's a harmonious family or a disharmonious family. Um, you know, if we're, yeah, just, you know, if we have accidents or don't, uh, so things like that, things like that happen in life or various traits that you have, very inclinations. So Vasubandhu says that a projecting karma produces only one rebirth and only one rebirth arises from a projecting karma. So it's a one-to-one both way. Okay. Whereas a Sangha, his older brother, um states that one projecting karma can produce one or many rebirths. Yeah. And many karmas sometimes ripen together to produce one rebirth and sometimes ripen together to produce many rebirths. Okay, so the two brothers have different understandings of this, and they both wrote Abhidharma texts. Okay, so so it's interesting to think about when you you know walk around, you look at different people, uh, looking at your own life. Things things like that, thinking about karma in this way really gives us a better understanding. So the results of many completing karmas are experienced in one life. Someone may be born in a war-torn country because of one non-virtuous completing karma, but receives shipments of food, medicine, and clothing resulting from virtuous completing karma. This is what is interesting, is when people have negative, you know, some unpleasant result, they always say, oh, this is the result of my negative karma. But they never look and say, oh, but, you know, I have, you know, like like say you fall sick. You know, oh, somebody took me to the hospital, the doctor treated me, I got medicine, my friends take care of me. People never say, oh, but I also had so much karma because even though I got sick, you know, I got well again due to the kindness of other people. Yeah, it's quite interesting how, how we we look at things, yeah, always look at the negative. Okay, so in in one event, yeah, you could have many different kinds of karma ripening, something that causes you pain, and then something that, uh, you know, helps make your life better afterwards. Circumstances in our lives may frequently change depending on the completing karma that ripens at any particular time. Then this next uh, one is collective and individual karma. People always find this part really interesting. So sentient beings are social and often act together. We belong, especially like human beings and and animals, you know, packs of dogs and, you know, what do you call a collection of cats? (laughs) (laughs) Besides a rarity. A (laughs) pride of lions. A pride pride of lions? Really? Oh. So. Huh? (laughs) Okay. So, uh, yeah. I mean, we always live together with other sentient beings. So we're social, and especially human beings, we're quite social. So um, we belong to various groups and work, play, and practice the dharma, and raise the next generation together. So all of those are, you know, done with other people. As such, we experience common results together. A sangha's compendium of knowing, a compendium of knowledge, discusses various possibilities of how this occurs. So some actions are done collectively by a large group, okay? So you're at His Holiness's Kalachakra teachings and you listen to the teachings and, you know, have the initiation together or whatever. Or, uh, you know, you're in a village in Syria and uh, it's bombed and you become refugees together or, you know, okay? So different groups. So they result um, in, um, Mm. so some actions are done collectively by a large group. They result in experiences shared by everybody in that group, such as living in the same country or experiencing a natural disaster. Okay, where you have groups of people having a common experience, that comes because in the past, They were together in some kind of group that had, you know, behaved in a similar way or a group that was constructed, that was formed for a particular purpose. So collective karma is also created in small groups. Okay, So experiencing the result together with other people is due to collective karma we created before. And then how we act as we experience those results together with those other people is going to determine, you know, it's going to influence things in future lives if the group is formed for a particular purpose and does actions together. So, collective karma is also created in small groups. The people attending dharma teachings or a soccer game create collective karma. All the participants will experience a similar result in a future group situation. We also create individual karma when we are part of a group. This results in experiences that are not shared by others, but may be experienced you have the result that the group experiences in common, but within that, everybody has an individual experience. In the same way that you can have a group that uh, is formed for a particular purpose, but everybody within that acts in different ways or have different person, uh, different motivations, okay? So at the same time you create collective karma, You can also be creating individual karma, and similar with experiencing the results. Okay, so we also create individual karma when we are part of a group. This results in experiences that are not shared by others. So everybody at a dharma teaching creates virtuous group karma because the purpose of the gathering is virtuous. Within that group, One person listens attentively and thinks, these teachings are important and I want to practice them. Okay. Another person sitting in the same room, listening to the same thing, okay, with a wandering mind thinks, I wonder what's for lunch. Okay. So the collective karma is similar, but the group karma is different. In the future, these two people will find themselves. In a similar, agreeable, hopefully, Dharma situation, but will experience it differently because of the individual karma that they create. So, the person who listened and thought, oh, this is interesting, I wanna practice, it probably will be very interested and be able to stay awake during the teachings when in the future life. And the people who's wondering what's for lunch may uh, wind up in the future um, future life cooking lunch and not being able to attend the teachings or, uh, you know, something like that, okay? So similarly, as the result of collective karma they create together, many people may be in a place plagued by an epidemic, but owing to individual karma, some will fall ill while others won't. Okay, so sometimes, you know, here we are in the middle of the pandemic, which has been a year now, you know, a year. And, uh, you know, sometimes you may sit there and go, my goodness, my life is so different than what was before. And I can't go around and do what I want to do. And, I, you know, I'm stuck in the house with my screaming kids who I love dearly, but I wish they didn't scream. And, you know, I love them and I wish somebody else would take care of them for a while. And, um, you know, uh, and, okay, so, um, you know, that that is your individual situation. We're all in it together experiencing the karma because of collective karma. Uh, But in the individual karma, then people have very different uh, situations, okay, within that. And, you know, as individuals experiencing different things, even though we're all in the pandemic together, we're all creating different karma. So not only experiencing the results of our personal karma, um, but also creating... Our own personal karma for the future. Now, within our experiencing the pandemic together, okay, there are the maskers and the anti maskers. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, if people get really embroiled with a, a group and that group identity of, you know, I am an anti masker or I'm a masker, um, you know, and then you really act like that all the time. And you, you know, you put forth your, I mean, that's become something that is kind of your mission during the pandemic is uh, to either get people to wear masks or not wear masks. Uh, Then you're creating some kind of group karma with other maskers or other anti-maskers, okay? (laughs) <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of wearing a mask is just, it's just a health thing. And here's where you see human, how we impute things, you know, impute meanings onto things, and then grasp those meanings as inherently existent. Yeah, so wearing a mask. Okay, on Halloween, everybody wears masks. <laughs> it's great. Nobody calls you names on Halloween if you're wearing a mask, okay? If you wear a mask not on Halloween, then, you know, some some people might call you names, they might, you know, you're weak, you're a Democrat, you're stupid, you've been pulled in by a hoax, you know, because the the virus isn't real, um, you know, all this kind of stuff. And all of that is imputed on the mask. The mask has none of that meaning, does it? The mask has absolutely no meaning in and of itself except, you know, to cover part of your face. And then other people impute the exact opposite onto the mask. Yeah. Oh, you're very good if you wear the mask. And the people who don't wear masks, you know, they're conspiracy theorists. And they're people, you know, who think that it's a hoax and blah, 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 blah. And of course, you know, that's all our imputation too. But we find so many ways to impute things on other people and then fight with them because of our imputations. Yeah, I mean, that's what's going on. Yes, you had a question?
2: Both the groups, their their sole goal is to convince the other group so they have a shared purpose. So, in a larger, you know, subset or a larger um, superset, aren't they also creating um, group karma together? Even though they have different individual views, uh, or Mike Goombloss. N- uh,
0: no, because there, you know, there's the group of maskers and the group of anti-maskers, and although, like you said, they're trying to convince each other of their purpose, uh, they have separate groups you know, and their groups are formulated uh, depending on different beliefs. Okay. But they are both alike in wanting to convince the other one. Yeah. Unless you happen to be a very easygoing masker. Yeah. Aren't we easygoing maskers? Are you an easygoing masker? I sometimes remind people, you know when i'm out I, but i say it very nicely please remember to pull your mask up mm-hmm. yeah nobody's ever called me a name though anybody here been called a name or mm-hmm. anything because you wear a mask laugh it. yeah laugh it. you've been laughed at when you go out uh uh-huh. yeah it's a good thing to be laughed at You're going to, people are going to laugh about you. I'd like to be laughed at because I'm wearing a mask, you know? Because at least it shows you're you're taking this whole thing seriously. Anyway, you can see what side I'm on. Um. (laughs) So it's important to be heedful of the groups that we choose to join, and the purposes for which they are established. Because we reap the result of the collective actions of that group that correspond to the purpose of the group. Okay, so we have to be very careful what kind of groups we hang out with and affiliate with and see ourselves as a part of. So the first Dalai Lama, who also wrote an Abhidharma text, He said, if one asks, in the course of a war and so forth, if one person kills another, does the karmic path arise only for that single person, the one who did the killing, versus all the other soldiers participating on his side in the war? And the answer is, no, in a war and so forth, Since they are all there with the same purpose of killing, they all have the karmic path in the same way as the killer. So if you join an army, and the purpose of the army is to kill the enemy, whenever anybody in that army kills, you also create, you reap the karma of killing. So you can be a general sitting, you know, in your nice, clean little place out of danger, creating tons of karma because you're the one, you know, telling all the different soldiers to go here and there and, you know, to get this one and to get that one. So you have to be very careful with the groups you join and also what we rejoice at. Yeah, because when we rejoice at the actions of somebody else, then we create that karma as if we had done it too. You know, so if you're part of a, a military unit and you go and you, you know, uh, wipe out the other people, you create the karma of killing and plus you're rejoicing at it. So it's, it's quite negative. On the other side, if... um like when you come to morning practice and you're you're practicing together with other people. Yeah, so that's collective karma. The group was formed for the purpose of practicing virtue. So then every, you know, you get additional karma not only from your own practice, but from um, following what the group is doing that is formed for the purpose of virtue. Okay, so everybody else in that group is creating virtue. You share in that virtue yourself because you're a member of that group. Okay, that was formed for that purpose, and you're you're rejoicing at everybody's virtue. If you're jealous of somebody else's virtue, that's really bad news, okay, because it's like finally somebody's creating some virtue and you can't stand it. It's like, you know... Uh, That's the wrong way to think. So while sitting in a crowd of thousands who have gathered to hear His Holiness teach, I, children, marvel at the opportunity to be part of a group that is formed for the purpose of developing compassion and attaining awakening. The collective karma created by this group is very different from a group whose purpose is to increase the value of a company's stock. Okay, so going to His Holiness Teaching, that group has formed the purpose of virtue. Going to a board meeting of a company, you're again with a, a group, but your purpose there is to make money. Okay. Or you go to the football game and your purpose is to root for your side and hope the bad side, the other side, gets injured or loses or whatever, you know. So, yeah, the karma you create is quite different. So it's interesting to think what kind of groups have you been a part of in your life and what groups... Did we just kind of grow up in? We didn't voluntarily join, but we just kind of grew up there and went along with their way of thinking. And what groups did we choose to join? What groups did we choose to leave? Okay. And why did we join certain groups? Why did we leave certain groups? It's okay. quite good to, to think about. it makes us really much more aware of different factors in our life going, going forward. Sometimes, without choice, we find ourselves part of a group whose purpose or activities we do not agree with. For example, we may be the citizen of a state that employs capital punishment. I remember, Washington State hasn't killed anybody recently that I know of, but I remember a few years ago, they executed somebody. And I remember that happening and specifically thinking, I do not agree with this. I do not want to be part of this group. Okay. And so on, you know, the the federal government under Trump, right at the end, he... Executed what eight or nine people, something like that. More than that, 13, 15. Yeah, just you know, I mean, this is Trump. So, you know, I, I was like, very much, I made prayers for these people's good rebirth. You know, but I am not, I'm, I'm a citizen of this country, but I do not agree with what this country is doing. Okay, it's the federal government, not the state government. Similarly, in the the different military strikes where I know people are gonna get killed, you know, so I may be a citizen of this country, but I do not agree with the purpose of what this group is doing. Okay, sometime, uh, yeah so if, if we do not endorse this activity we do not create this particular collective karma being clear and aware of our intentions in such situations is extremely important so that we can skillfully guide our creation of karma you know similarly when you watch the news or listen to the news or even watch a movie you know even if it's not something true You know, we get emotionally involved and we can so easily, you know, like, oh, I hope that person really suffers or, you know, I'm glad that that, something bad happened to that person or they got what's coming to them. You know, having those kind of attitudes towards other people. um, It can happen, you know, just standing and watching people do something or like I said, in movies and plays and dramas and stuff like that. So we have to be very careful of what our what goes on in our mind at, at those times you know. It's really, really easy to to think, you know, oh, I'm so glad that she got removed from her her the committees, you know she's such a mm, 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 and she deserved that you know, that attitude, you know, or saying, I'm glad she was removed from the committees because, you know, see, the qualifications to be a really useful committee member are not there on her part. You know, that's an entirely different thing rather than, oh, I'm so glad that she got punished. Okay. Which we can so easily do, can't we? Yeah, and nobody else is around to call us out on it when we act really vicious, when we're, you know, watching a program. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then the next um, subheading is naturally non-virtuous actions and proscribed actions. So this relates to Vinaya. Karma is also divided into naturally non-virtuous actions and actions proscribed by the Buddha. So those that are naturally non-virtuous, such as the ten non-virtues, are so-called because they are done with a non-virtuous motivation. Okay, Their nature is non-virtuous and they have the potential to produce suffering results. Okay? So whoever does them, whether that person is monastic or lay, creates non-virtue and negativity and will experience unpleasant results. Okay? So that's why, you know, when we look, okay, killing, stealing, you know, these things, They are naturally negative. So then somebody's going to raise their hand and say, but what about the story of the ship captain who killed the guy who was going to kill the 500 merchants? That's a whole other story. And there's a debate, actually. Some people say he didn't create any negative karma. Some people say he did create negative karma. He experienced it. In an instant, it ripened and was over, and then he had, you know, a happy result. Okay. But don't go to the exceptions. Just think generally. Yeah. I mean, how many people kill are going, I'm doing this for the, you know, sent- the sake of sentient beings? Some people do that. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's the whole military way of thinking. That's that's what they teach you at the beginning. Okay? That you are serving the country, you are helping people. Yeah. But then, the more you get into training, then they teach you to call names to the enemy. They teach you names to call those people, tell you how bad and disgusting those people are, how they deserve to die and they're doing you. So they they feed you a lot of quite contradictory stuff before you go into battle. But I um, once went um, with Tenzin Katya, some of you remember her. She was a, uh, a chaplain at, is it the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs? Yeah, so I went with her one time. There was a Buddhist group. Can you imagine that? A Buddhist group at an Air Force Academy. And it was so interesting talking to the guys because so many of them said, I signed up because I want to help people, and the military is a way to help people. Okay, now I know I'm on uh, thin ice. Uh, I'm I'm getting the blue-eyed gaze back there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I'm just talking generally not about everybody. Okay, and you can raise your hand and have the microphone afterwards. Um, (laughs) But, um, yeah, so I was so surprised because they, they were so sincere. I really want to help people, yeah, and I want to promote, you know, what was it, liberty, justice, and... The American Way, I'm not so sure about the American way these days. Um, you know, but uh, I want to promote those values and this is a good way to do it. And it was so interesting for me to be there because I had never thought of people who enlisted uh, having that thought because I grew up in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And the people I knew didn't join the military with that kind of mind. They were forced into it. So, um, and then I, when I left, I was thinking about it. And their motivations were good. The part where they got stuck is when you work for only the side of one country, then that's going to put you in opposition to the people of other countries. And I thought, you know, this is what happens in Buddhism is we try to break down those barriers. You know? And when you uh, meditate on the four immeasurables, there's actually part of a stage of the meditation that is called breaking down the barriers, where you try and get rid of this idea of friend, enemy, and stranger and extend those feelings towards everybody. And I thought, you know, these guys have a great motivation, but there was no equanimity. It was very partial. It was, you know, like working for for all Americans, but what about working for everybody? And this was my when I first heard the idea of America first, This is what I felt very troubled by, you know, because it sounded to me like America only, which is basically how it turned out to be. But, uh, you know, and I don't think that that view is helpful. You know, whenever there's an us and them view, you're going to wind up helping some and harming others. So, uh, again, to be careful about this kind, this kind of thing in our actions, you know. Okay, actions prescribed by the Buddha. So, that, what we just talked about was the naturally negative ones. Okay, and then there's actions prescribed by the Buddha. Uh, those are the ones that are regulated by precepts, such as the Pratimoksha precepts of monastics or the five lay precepts. Some of these actions are not naturally non-virtuous and do not necessarily involve an afflictive motivation. They may also be done with a neutral or constructive motivation. So examples are singing, dancing, watching entertainment, wearing perfumes, ornaments, and cosmetics, eating after midday, and handling money. So those are examples. OK, those are not naturally negative. Yeah. And also what is included in, the, in this, which is surprising to me, is the intoxicants precepts. They say that one's not naturally negative. OK, because I guess you could, uh, before surgery or something in, in ancient times, you know, you would get drunk. Yeah, in the Civil War, they had to amputate their their your leg. They got you good and drunk. Okay, so you know, singing, dancing, uh, playing music, we do those. We can do those for religious reasons, you know. So they're not nat- naturally negative. Same things with perfumes, ornaments, cosmetics. Very often. Some of these things, it's easy to do with a non-virtuous motivation, but they're not actions that naturally, by their very nature, people are gonna always do with a bad motivation, okay? So so here again, you have 4P, yeah? between naturally negative and uh, proscribed yeah, in terms of virtue and non-virtue. Okay, so what would be a? Let's see if we can do this. Um, okay, so what is an action that is uh, um, naturally negative and also proscribed by the Buddha? Murder. Hmm?
1: Murder.
0: Murder. Okay. What is one that is naturally negative but not proscribed by the Buddha? Hmm?
2: What? Social media (laughs) abuse.
0: No, I wouldn't say that's naturally negative. I I can't think of one, because I think anything that would be naturally negative, the Buddha would point out, you know, there would be a precept about that. Okay, so what's something that is not naturally negative that there's a precept about, that is proscribed by the Buddha? What? Yeah, drinking alcohol. Yeah, Okay eating after midday, um, this kind of thing. What is something that is not naturally negative and not prescribed by the Buddha? Being generous? Huh? Being generous? No. Because that's not naturally negative? Yeah. And... Oh, okay, yeah. That's not naturally negative and and not proscribed by the Buddha. Okay, yeah, so a virtuous action, like being generous. Yeah, okay. When those who hold monastic precepts transgress a precept, they commit an offense or a downfall, okay? That's what it's called, um, by engaging in an action proscribed by the Buddha. To purify this, they must confess and apply the appropriate method as prescribed in the Vinaya. For this reason, it is very important for monastics to attend a Posada rite with, that's our fortnightly um, confession and restoration of of precepts, to attend a Posada rite with four or more fully ordained monastics. Depending on the gravity of the offense, the way of making amends differ. Someone committing a remainder offense must enter a period of penance in which he or she temporarily relinquishes monastic privileges. And then you have to go through another ceremony to get rehabilitated and and assume your your place back in the Sangha. Um, Whereas a monastic who obtains an article by wrong livelihood must relinquish that article. And minor offenses are purified by confessing them to another monastic who is free from that transgression. And then the, uh, the precepts that have to do with etiquette, we can confess to ourselves. They're quite, you know, much more minor. So, So the idea here is, and it's gonna come, with naturally negative actions, you create negative karma with doing uh, a prescribed action, then you create a downfall. Yeah, in Tibetan, when you confess, there's two. You confess dig drip. It's a Tibetan term. Dig drip. Dig means negativity. So those are the the, the non-virtuous karmas. Drip means uh, like an obscuration, and that's coming from uh, breaking a the proscribed action of the Buddha, breaking the precept. So some actions that we do, you know, as monastics, we have a precept, and it's a naturally negative action. And if you break that, then you get both, the negative karma and the obscuration that comes from breaking the precept. Yeah, If you don't have that precept and you do the, the same negative action, you kill somebody or whatever, then you create the negative karma, but you don't create the obscuration. If it's an action that is not a negative, naturally negative action, but it is prescribed by the Buddha and you've taken those precepts, then you create the obscuration, but you don't necessarily create the negativity. However, if even though that action is not naturally negative, if you do it with a bad motivation, then it becomes negative. And in that circumstances, you create both the negativity and the um, the transgression. Okay, the downfall. If you don't have the precepts, then you don't create any of the downfalls because you haven't broken a prescribed precept because you know you don't have one. Yeah. Okay. So uh, okay. So if the transcribe the transgress precept regulates an action that is naturally non-virtuous such as killing an animal or telling small lies or even big lies. The monastic creates negativity and needs to apply the four opponent powers to purify this karma in addition to amending the offense by confessing it to the sangha. Okay? So we get rid of the the negative karma through the four opponent powers, we get rid of the transgression and that obscuration by um, confessing to the sangha and then attending posada. So this is one of the reasons why doing posada is really important um, for us as practitioners.
2: Why do they call it
0: an obscuration? Why do they call it an obscuration? Because apparently it's not something negative, but Because you've done something contradictory to what the Buddha said to do, you know, that... Yeah, that's not good. So it obscures the mind. Mm -hmm. And and because it involves the precepts directly, you know, and the Sangha community is the the group that has the precepts, then you purify it with the Sangha community, yeah. And so when we get into studying, after we finish um, Choosing Simplicity, we'll do Venerable Benyan's book about the the Sangha Karmans. And then he really goes in there about, uh, yeah, all these different activities that the Sangha do and how they help us to abandon the, you know, of both the, the downfalls as well as the negative karma. So even if the action itself is not naturally negative, people engaging in it, whether they hold precepts or not, may still create negativity if they have a non-virtuous intention while doing the action, okay? So a monastic who handles money with contempt for the precepts creates negativity as well as the offense that must be confessed to the sangha. So that person, double job, one double trouble, okay? Similarly, when monastics motivated by attachment or anger, eat in the evening. So eating in the evening is not a naturally negative action, but if you eat you know, out of attachment or anger, then they have to rectify both the negativity arising from eating out of attachment or anger, as well as the offense of transgressing the precept. Okay, got that? If they eat afternoon under circumstances in which the Buddha allowed them to eat, for example, the monastic is ill, working for the Sangha or traveling, there is no offense or negativity. You know, unless they're like really eating with a lot of attachment or, or anger, but there's, you know. If none of these extenu- extenuating circumstances apply and the monastic eats because she sees food as medicine to keep her body healthy so she can practice the Dharma, there is an offense but no negativity. Okay. So that's why we all, you know, the people who eat in the evening always confess at every every posada. In brief, in a case where the offense also creates negativity, such as a monastic lying, the negativity and the offense are one nature, but nominally different. As such, they are purified by different methods. When the offense... The offenses have been confessed to the sangha with the prescribed ritual. They are said to have been purified. However, the negativity can only be purified through sincere application of the four opponent powers. On the other hand, if the person purifies the negativity by engaging in the four opponent powers, but does not confess the offense and make amends to the sangha, and attend posada, the offense remains and obscures the mind. Until the person confesses and makes amends, he is not fit to carry out certain monastic activities, such as giving ordination. If the person is not conscientious, these offenses may later lead him to engage in negativities or create further offenses. Okay, so in the Vinaya, you know, it's, it's quite clear that if you uh, violate prescribed actions and you don't confess them and restore them, yeah, then the, this is probably for the really serious ones. I wouldn't think it would be for a lapse, but probably for, for you know, a, a definitely for a remainder, probably for a, um, a forfeiture lapse. But uh, you know you have that you haven't confessed it, you've concealed it, yeah, or you've you haven't broken a parajika, a defeat completely, but maybe you've you've created one, two, or three of the four limbs of it, yeah, and haven't confessed. Then you know you're you're not allowed, you're not considered considered a member of the sangha who is qualified to engage in certain sangha karmas Okay. And again, there's a lot of details and descriptions that Venerable Benyan goes, goes into in the book um, about, you know, how you have, what you have to do to be qualified to do certain things. Okay. So you can't just kind of uh, you know, be be Tashi nobody and kind of uh, break precepts right and left and then say, oh, well, I'm gonna be the preceptor for this ordination. You know, that's that doesn't work, okay? You have to purify and get yourself cleaned up first. I wonder what your thoughts are on community guidelines that are not, ne- most of which are not naturally negative and not prescribed by the Buddha, but we do right. confess. Right? Yeah. Like surfing internet in Gotami Tea Room. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. So I can't remember what Venerable Benyon says about that. It's, certainly, it's it's you know it's a community guideline. There's some kind of transgression involved there, and uh, you know, and it's good to kind of own up to it. And then, depending on your motivation. If it's like, well, who cares about community guidelines? If this one is like contempt, like contempt for the precepts, like who cares? Then, you know, there's going to be some negativity involved in it too. Question about projecting and
1: completing karma.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What determines um, which of those a karma becomes? Or-
0: well, if you have all four um, parts, Together, it's going to be a projecting karma.
1: And then, if you have less than four, it less becomes than a complete. It's going to
0: be a completing. Or if it's a very weak karma, then it not a very weak karma, but you know, a much weaker karma. Thinking about some people I've known in the past, where they joined the military to pay for their education in post-secondary. Yeah. And they never saw combat, but for example, at some point, Canada went into the Afghanistan war. And so they're still accumulating karma because they're in the military? Yeah. Well, it depends, again, here on the purpose for joining the military. Like you said, if their purpose was, you know, I come from a family that can't afford fees for my schooling and I want to go to school so I join the the military for that and I don't want to kill anybody and I'm not uh, enrolling for any combat positions, then I think that it's going to be quite different if a person's really thinking. Uh, it's it's would be an example of belonging to a group but not advocating the purposes for which that group was formed.
1: Uh, someone is asking, how does collective karma work with watching these teachings on replay? I imagine it's more potent to tune in live.
0: Imagine what?
1: How does collective
0: karma work
1: if someone's watching these teachings on, on replay, replay after? It? I imagine it's more potent
0: to tune in live. Oh, yes, definitely. Okay. Yeah, um, not not just potent karmically, but I mean really for your own uh, taking in of the teachings. And I think it's not just watching it on replay w- versus watching it when it's live. I think it's the whole idea of um, I mean, so I'm talking about a time when there's not a pandemic and when you can get to teachings, but you say, ah, if I go to teachings, then I have to arrive on time, I have to sit up straight, sit on the floor, cross-legged. If I don't go to the teaching, go don't go to the Abbey or the Dharma Center, I can stay at home, I can watch the teachings, lean back in my comfortable chair, you know, have a cup of tea, have a beer. Uh, when it's boring, I can get up and go walk around, do something else. And so you don't go to teachings. Yeah, you're going to get a very different experience. Yeah, you you cannot replace, uh, you know, being there with a live teacher and a, and a live group of of fellow Dharma practitioners, okay? Now, and of course, in the pandemic, it's an entirely different thing, okay? I mean, there, of course, you just have to do whatever you can. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: When a lay practitioner does an action that breaks the precepts, does it create
0: the negative action and the obscuration as well? If they've taken the precept, to not do the action, yes. Then they it creates both
1: for them. So, like, if you're watching like a movie or and it's um or a play or something, and it's a fictitious character being killed, and you're rejoicing in it because they're the villain, it seems like it lacks the um. It lacks the object, but you're still conditioning your mind. Isn't that still yeah. creating negative karma? Yeah. With video games, too, it would seem. What? It would seem with video games, too. You're conditioning your mind in a certain way.
0: Yeah, right. So even though it's a fictitious thing and nobody's really getting killed, your mind could be relating to it as if it were really happening and generating those same kind of emotions. So it may not be, you know, a totally complete with four actions because... There was not anybody really killed. But if you're rejoicing at it, then, you know, there's negativity involved.
1: So when you, um, when, when a projecting karma ripens and, and throws a rebirth, in a future life, that same projecting karma can also have be a completing karma later for another like you might go to a hell realm for killing and yet later you're born as a human right. and then it's then it's so then is it considered then to be a completing karma yeah and a second time yeah, around? yeah
0: it looks like it you know I've never heard that said but it looks like that's what's happening it's going from being it it uh ripened the result ripen of the throwing of the propelling karma ripened in the lower rebirth, that's finished, but there's still something to be experienced from the action. And so it would, you know, like is influence what you experience in that life. And that seems to me to be, a, it would be a completing karma at that point.
1: Would someone having a cosmetic procedure create negative karma because
0: of their attachment to their appearance? Well, is attachment virtuous or non-virtuous?
1: For for lay people who take precepts but don't have pasada, what should they do for
0: confession? Um, In the... Uh, it's the red prayer book, blue prayer book, blue prayer book. Then uh, on page eighty four, there is a uh, a refuge and precept ceremony that I wrote based on teachings from Lama Yeshi. Yeah, and so I ask whenever people take precepts with me, I ask them to do that every two weeks, and uh, you know think of of you know, confess what they've done and maybe do the 35 Buddhas and then read the, the read the text. Yeah. Uh, you know, that isn't a must, that isn't what all the, teach, the people are told, but it's something that I do for the people who take it with me, because I think that really helps them keep the precepts well
2: two the first one is like how do we get a virtuous completing karma to ripen like is it an environmental thing do we or is it an intention Mm. thing
0: yeah so to get uh, a virtuous karma to ripen um put yourself in good situations you know because we can see if we put ourselves in bad situations then our mind gets negative. That is a very fertile field for the ripening of negative karma. If you put yourself in a good situation, you're around virtuous people, and you're trying to practice and all. It doesn't mean you'll never suffer. You know, you're in samsara, and negative karma still ripens. But it becomes much easier um, to avoid the ripening of, of those negative karmas and and to have some virtuous karma ripen.
2: And then my other question is about the sources. Uh-huh. I love these examples when we are talking about karma. Like you do such and such action, and this result comes about. Uh huh. And I've seen like Wheel of Sharp Weapons. It has a lot of you know you do this, and this negative result comes about. Uh huh. Is there one that's like you do this positive thing, and this positive result oh. comes about, or is it always just the opposite? Okay.
0: Yeah. It. Uh, I asked His Holiness about this once, and he said, um, especially you know because they, when they talk about. How it multiplies and it gets so much stronger and so on. And he says, every time you talk about a negative karma, the same thing is true for a virtuous karma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that everything is, uh, you know, magnified with with non virtue. Yeah, it would actually be good if if they taught more about virtuous karma. It's kind of the the stick and the carrot thing. Yeah. Huh?
2: Garland talks a lot
0: about Yeah, that's true. Precious Garland talks a lot about virtue.
2: Just to be clear, it's always like this... Um, for example, with the generosity and you know being kind and having a positive appearance, the, the case would also be that if you're not kind and you're miserly, then you're going to have a negative. Well, if
0: you're miserly, then you usually uh, the result is is financial problems and poverty. Yeah, for the the um, for uh, getting angry a lot, then the result is often said to be unattractive. Okay, because even in this life, when you're angry, you become unattractive. So it just carries over to next life. <laughs> yeah, it's, it makes sense when you think about it.
2: Like We kind of have a natural wisdom for the irony. You know, whenever there's something ironic, more often than not, it's like, oh, that's a karmic effect of this action.
0: That, uh, huh? Say that again.
2: Um, so it's ironic that someone who kills a bunch of people gets killed. And we kind of think to ourselves, that's ironic. ironic." But that's kind of like a wisdom consciousness saying that's the effects of karma.
0: I don't see that as ironic.
2: I think that is maybe not ironic, the word. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll think about it more, I'll come back.
0: Yeah. Or does somebody else understand we, maybe we just have different
2: definitions of ironic. One of the doubt that I have is that you know, if you're generous in the past, um, you will have you know wealth and sufficient resources and so on, right? But often we talk about that the wealthy people tend to be less generous <laughs> than some poor's often. Yeah. So. I just don't get that. It's cuz if you're gen, if you're generous in the past, you're probably generous currently too mm-hmm. cuz there's also a tendency. Okay, but well, you have to think
0: that this is many karmas that have been created over many many lifetimes. Okay? So somebody may have created through generosity a lot of virtue and then they're they're rich this lifetime, okay? So that would be a uh, A karma that would be uh, concordant with the, no, it would be more, yeah, like concordant with the cause, okay? And, but then, let's say in this lifetime, there's two things. In this lifetime, they're just extremely stingy. So they're experiencing the result of virtue, but they're frittering it away by being stingy and not using it to create more virtue, yeah? So Nagarjuna talks about this a lot in Precious Garland when he says to the king, you know, you have all this wealth, use it and be generous and create good karma with it now, because when you die, you can't take it with you, and, you know all your ministers are going to divide it up. and Or, you know, if you get really sick, all your ministers are going to run off with it. So use it to create virtue now when you have a chance. So it could be just that in this life, the person's very stingy. Or it could be that in a previous life, they were stingy. And as the result similar to the cause, then... In this life, they are, again, stingy. So it could come from either way, either the influence from the past life or it could come, you know, being very stingy this life. Okay.